And now we will move on to our next panel that will cover alternatives and real assets. And I ask our speakers to please come on stage. Thank you for joining, and I'll let Alex take it from here. Great. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, we have 40 minutes for this panel, but I think we're about three minutes behind, so we'll, we'll try and, and, and keep everything flowing. Um, first of all, I just want to say it is extremely nice to be back in person. It's lovely to see everybody who I haven't seen in a long time. Um, thank you very much to Capital Link, especially Ani, Eleni, and Nicholas, who do this every single year, and it's hard, and we know how much work goes into it, and thank you very much. So anyway, let's just start. Um, this has been an extraordinarily turbulent year. Um, we had a CPI print, so it's an extraordinarily turbulent morning as well, um, and assets of all kinds um, have suffered. I think uh, through the first three quarters of this year, the traditional 60-40 uh, has underperformed down about 20%. Um, that is the, the worst strategy, but for two years, both of which during the Depression. Um, so in light of that, I think it isn't surprising that we have a lot of investors that are seeking out alternatives, seeking out to balance risks, and how to incorporate different asset classes into their portfolios. And so it's very timely that we're here to talk about alternatives and real assets and other things beyond the norm of 6040. Um, we're very lucky to have Jonathan Mondello, who's head of uh, U.S. fixed income from Aberdeen. We have Barry Nelson, who's a senior advisor in Advent and a partner there, uh, and Brian Cordes, uh, who's senior vice president at Conan Sears today. Um, we're going to have some time for Q&A afterwards, so I'd just like to turn the microphone over to Jonathan to get it started, uh, and then we'll do follow-up and Q&A afterwards. And with that, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, as you stated, I was, uh, I'm head of U.S. Fixed Income at Aberdeen. Uh, a lot of what I do in the alternative investment space is on the uh, public, finan public finance and the project finance side. So we deal with issuers both in the municipal space as well in the private lending space uh, to get infrastructure assets built. Uh, so mainly long-term lending structures to large infrastructure projects both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Uh, so I'm going to focus a little bit about what I talk about today on, on those particular areas. Barry. Hi, uh, I'm Barry Nelson uh, from Advent Capital. We specialize in convertibles. Uh, I loved uh, Alex's introduction about 6040 not working because we have long argued that convertibles automatically shift back and forth, that this is an easier way to effectively have diversity of getting uh, equity-like returns um, with a, uh, in a fixed income uh, structure. And um, I've been at this for uh, 50 years. Uh, next month, uh, I may have more seniority than anyone else uh, in the room. Uh, none of you appear to be my children. And uh, anyway, convertibles have performed uh, as well as equities uh, over the long ter term. And uh, they've just had a terrible start to this year, uh, one of the wor perhaps the worst in record in modern times. And historically, whenever convertibles have tanked sharply, uh, 
they've made a spectacular recovery uh, afterward. Enough said for the moment. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Cordes. I head up the portfolio specialist group at Cohen and Steers. Uh, and in addition to leading the team, I also have responsibility covering our real estate team and our preferred securities team. And uh, if you look at the closed end fund lineup at Cohen and Steers, the majority of our offerings are, in fact, in real estate and preferreds. Uh, unfortunately, uh, both being more yield oriented asset classes, they've felt quite a bit of pain uh, so far this year as well. If you look at the broader preferred markets on a year-to-date basis right now, you're down about 17%. Uh, if you were to look at the U.S. listed real estate market, you're down about 31% coming into today. Uh, that being said, we're, we're starting to see some things. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you, pound, up, pound the table, uh, back up the truck. I, but I think as painful as it may be, we know from a historical perspective these are the times when you should start to think about allocating to these spaces in a, in a dollar cost average or drip type mode. And uh, I can expand on those reasons why uh, as we move on. Yeah, so, you know, when I was, when we were crafting this panel, there's a lot of sort of divergent threads here and different asset classes and sort of how do you incorporate them. But there is some unity in terms of the risks that people are trying to avoid, right? So most of the questions that we tend to get are about interest rate risk, they're about credit risk. And so I just thought as an open question to each of the panelists, maybe starting with Jonathan, uh, how, wh what is that balance of risks? How do you adjust for credit risk? How do you look at it in this environment? Interest rate risk? How, how should investors think about these asset classes, um, especially when it comes to infrastructure finance and things like that, which they may be less familiar with? Yeah, sure. So I think when we talk about credit risk, just given you know, the, the balance sheet performance and some of the inflationary measures that have translated into increased revenues for some of the projects that we deal with. Um, you know, I think on a whole, looking at things holistically, things look pretty strong at the moment in terms of fundamentals. That being said, I think that, uh, you know, you look at where interest rates have gone and we look at public finance and project finance, I think on a go forward basis, there's no doubt about it that it's going to take more money to build large infrastructure projects, right? So weighted average cost of capital has now gone up from where it was last year, just given the two to 300 basis points move that we've seen in interest rates. It's costing more money today to get a project built than it did last year. Uh, and I think, you know, you look at the CPI print this morning, uh, inflation certainly seems to be sticky. So I think one of the risks that we talk about with investors when they're investing in the space is, uh, you know, that's going to eat into some of the margins of these projects, debt service coverage ratios, et cetera. And for issuers and for people that are trying to bid, build large infrastructure projects, uh, what does that mean for them, right? So not only is the cost of labor going up, the cost of goods is going up, uh, and depending upon how sticky that is, uh, is really going to dictate on, you know, how, how much it costs to build these infrastructure assets. So I think that's really where our main concerns are at the moment in terms of building infrastructure in the U.S. right now. Now, I think one of the positives that helps, uh, helps the infrastructure space certainly is really two things. One is the uh, recent legislation that was passed in the infrastructure, uh, excuse me, IIJA, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, which is more of like the largest uh, green infrastructure bill uh, rather than an Inflation Reduction Act. And I think what that does really is help 
help help leverage uh, excuse me help leverage those 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 capitals that capital injection to help build infrastructure in the United States. Um, so I think certainly some risks as a result of increase in interest rates and sticky inflation, uh, but certainly as a result of those two legislative measures, uh, certainly a, a lot of expected opportunity on the horizon in the infrastructure space. Interesting. Um, Barry, you had alluded to this sort of the self-balancing characteristics of, of convertibles. Um, how do you think about that in light of, of, of risks, credit risks, interest rate risks, and the like? Well, first off, historically, convertibles are much more sensitive to equities than they are to, to bonds, especially to treasuries, that uh, interest rate risk with convertibles uh, is minimal. Credit risk is much more significant, uh, the fundamental risk. And um, we take a credit focus uh, with the convertibles. Our analysts all emphasize cash flow, and uh, we're very careful to stay on the good side of credit. That said, following this uh, swoon in convertibles uh, and everything else, uh, something like 70% of our convertible bonds are now trading at discounts. Uh, they have short durations, a little over two years on average. Uh, these bonds are virtually assured of coming back to par. And if history is any guide and the stocks, the underlying stocks recover, and uh, one reason we're down so much is uh, heavy uh, tech sensitivity. The hottest went to the coldest. Uh, if that bounces, uh, we're going to do very well uh, with convertibles, and I hope to invest in them. Uh, we don't have to be uh, as brave as um, uh, Mariana alluded to uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, Brian, I would, I would ask you the same. Um, in terms of just balancing the, the, the notions of credit risk and interest rate risk, what, what do you have? Yeah, so I'd say with preferreds, uh, of course, one of the primary risks is, is rising interest rates, right? And one of the ways uh, we've gone about defending against that this year is emphasize more, allocate more to the institutional preferred market. And if you're not familiar uh, with that market, essentially the preferred structures in the institutional market are primarily fixed to reset securities where your coupons fix for a designated length of time, typically five years, and then if the issuer doesn't call it away, it's gonna reset at whatever the five-year treasury rate is plus an additional credit spread. So we've been allocating more to the institutional market this year to defend against rates. But in addition, we've also been focusing on those securities that are closer to their reset date. The closer they are to the reset date, the lower the duration. At the same point in time, we've increased the level of quality within the portfolio. We've been fo focusing in on higher quality issuers, selling off some of our more non-investment grade rated securities. But for preferreds as a whole, you know, the issuers of preferreds are less cyclically oriented. They're primarily banks, insurance companies, and then other regulated uh, industries such as telecom and utility. So maybe not the same cyclicality you would see from issuers in, let's say, the high yield market. Uh, similarly, in the real estate market, you know, one of the things that we'll typically look at is allocating the property types based on lease duration, okay? Uh, if you think about some of the property types, those with shorter lease durations, hotels, they can raise the rent on a nightly basis. 
uh, forms of residential, apartments, single family for rent, manufactured homes, your lease duration is typically going to be a year or even self-storage. So those types of landlords, they have the ability to, let's say, offset increases in inflation or rising rates by resetting the rate, the rental rate on the tenant sooner, and that can help offset, okay? Uh, the challenge has been, though, of course, we're also dealing with uh, a recessionary environment, right? Slowing economic growth. So the playbook isn't necessarily the same as what you would be able to use in, in uh, prior periods. I'd also point out, you know, some of those um, property types that tend to be a bit more defensive would be things like healthcare, right? Where it's more needs-based demand. If the economy improves or, or declines, it's not gonna result in that much change of, of demand. Uh, but they do have longer lease durations. They can be upwards of 10 years or more. So with that, they're more interest rate sensitive because they're more bond-like. So you couldn't just necessarily move into a, a full-blown defensive mode either. So I'd say what we've done right now is we're fairly balanced, but we're focused more on property types that I would call stable growers. Property types where we don't expect demand will be as negatively impacted from a recessionary environment. Not recession proof, but more recession resistant. And in that I would think of data centers, the cell towers, single family for rent, uh, even industrial self-storage for that matter. Those are kind of the, some of the areas that we're emphasizing to overcome that today. Yeah, as, as, a, as a midtown operator, I, I just came from my company's offices, which are candidly 65, 75% full on a good day and maybe 50% full on a bad day. Yeah. How do you feel about the office space? Uh, it is our largest underweight position across the board. Uh, in fact, we are really void of any office holdings up and down the coast. So nothing in New York, LA, San Francisco, Boston, DC, and part of it is what you alluded to. Right? If you look at office utilization rates right now in the large coastal markets, you're still at about 50 to 60%. So many of these buildings may be 80 to 85% leased or occupied right now, but what happens when those leases come due? Right? What is the likelihood that these tenants are gonna be looking to re-lease or, or re-up for the same space? Uh, it's probably pretty unlikely. So in fact, the only area of the country right now uh, where we don't mind office all that much is in the Sun Belt. Because of course, we continue to see Americans migrate towards these areas, but corporations are as well. Everyone's looking for lower tax jurisdictions. So we're the company we own primarily focused in Atlanta, Nashville, kind of Tampa, St. Petersburg area of Florida. Yeah. Um, Brian touched on something important. He used the word granularity, right, to, to sort of differentiate even within these asset classes or, or, or within these areas, which parts are, are interesting and which are not. Um, Barry, do you think sort of anything applies there in convertibles? Are there sectors that are more interesting or are there broad rules of the road that people should be aware of? Well, I'd say uh, tech has been with us forever in convertibles. Uh, uh, we recently uh, wrote a book in which uh, we went through the history of convertibles, uh, going back to the invention of the steam railways in the early 1800s, uh, extremely disruptive. And uh, it's been that way uh, throughout the nearly 200 years of the modern uh, convertible market. So we always have a tech focus. Uh, 
It's a multi-cap market uh, with convertibles. We even have a few financials. Indeed, uh, AVK owns uh, two convertible preferreds issued by banks that have a $1,000 uh, par, uh, just like the uh, institutional uh, convertible preferreds uh, Brian uh, referred to, although they are not fixed to floating. They're simply fixed. Uh, for your personal accounts, you ought to look at this 6% uh, yield uh, qualified uh, uh, dividend income. So anyway, we're wildly, we are, yeah, we're wildly diversified in convertible land. Uh, we don't have a lot of companies um, with real assets, but we have an awful lot of companies uh, with cash flow. And at present, uh, we've got a lot of yield with uh, short maturities. Yeah, and Jonathan, I would, I would ask you the same question. What are some of the factors that push you towards one subsector or another? Uh, I mean, I'd say less so one sector versus another, but within particular sectors, certainly when we talk about project finance, infrastructure builds, um, we're looking at uh, uh, issuers or projects where revenue, there is some revenue certainty, right? So certainly prefer availability payment projects where the uh, equity sponsor has negotiated in many instances a municipal entity uh, some level of profit margin so and, and in addition to that uh, have inflation ties to the revenues that they're able to collect uh, from that infrastructure asset versus more um, volume driven based infrastructure assets uh, volumes in, in certain particular sectors, one being mass transit, obviously Metropolitan Transit Association being, a Metropolitan Transit Authority being the largest in the country, have seen uh, uh, fare box revenue collections drop off considerably, right? So you look at ridership levels today versus pre-COVID, we're still only about 70%. Uh, and that sort of translates to other infrastructure, mass transit uh, projects as well. So I think it's important that, de depending upon the sector and within those sectors, to, to focus on projects that are, as I said, uh, uh, where the revenues are availability-based, and there are some levers to uh, increase those revenues as inflation increases or as demand decreases, uh, again, as, as we get into sort of a, a economic slowdown or even a recessionary environment versus those volume-based uh, uh, assets. Interesting. Um, Barry is the only one yet who has mentioned an actual ticker symbol from his from his firm and what, what he thinks some of the advantages are. Would you tell us a little bit about how you actually put the rubber on the road? Uh, yeah, yeah, so we run a number of different open-ended mutual funds. On the closed-end fund side, we've recently launched uh, ASGI, which is a global infrastructure strategy. It's on the private equity and public equity side, so I'm more focused on the debt markets, but certainly think that uh, you know the portfolio management team in place has been doing this for quite some time. There's a number of different opportunities, I think, to pair those two different uh, uh, asset classes of public equity and private equity within the closed-end fund, uh, closed fund wrapper, if you will, uh, which I think also translates to the public-private opportunities on the debt side, but that's probably for another discussion. Uh, again, ASGI uh, investing and, and gonna benefit from some of those tailwinds from those large infrastructure projects uh, over the next coming years, now trading at 
a rather steep discount, somewhere in the range of 12 to 13%, paying out close to a 10% dividend. So I think there are certainly opportunities, not only to capitalize on some of those macro tailwinds that we talked about, different legislative packages, and also uh, you know, just a, 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 a global focus on infrastructure build, whether that be in core infrastructure or in uh, sort of the greenification of, uh, of, of, of energy uh, distribution and, and energy ge uh, generation. Um, so I think that's probably one ticker that we would focus on in, in terms of opportunity set. Uh, Brian, how do you feel about that? Yep, so uh, look, we manage a number of different funds. I think if I just called a couple out, uh, in the preferred market we have PTA. Uh, if you look at that portfolio right now, you've got an indicated yield on it right now of 9%. Uh, the duration is just at about four years, so you've got a good income per unit of duration there. Currently trading at about a 13% discount uh, to NAV as well, and when you think about preferreds as a whole, uh, they're trading at about 12% discount to their par value. So the securities are trading at a discount, and then the fund's trading uh, at another discount. But perhaps the biggest takeaway with that fund uh, nearly all, or all or nearly all of the income is going to be treated as qualified dividend income. So you'd be taxed at a top rate of 20% versus 37%. So I got to think a yield of 9%, nearly all treated as QDI at some point, that's got to get pretty attractive uh, to people. Uh, also, on the uh, more real estate side, we did have a, a launch earlier this year, RLTY. Uh, that was in February. Uh, that one has underperformed, obviously, but I think there, too, you're trading at about a 10% discount. Uh, that, on the real estate side, is looking to take advantage of a lot of the migration patterns that we're seeing. Uh, so you'll see a number of holdings in that strategy that are looking to take advantage of the moves to the south and the Sun Belt. Uh, and then Doug, who was up here uh, earlier, Doug Bond from Cohen and Steers, he manages uh, FOF, which is a fund of funds, uh, where he's surveying the uh, entire closed-end fund market and uh, positioning that portfolio with his very best ideas across the entire universe. Great. And, and Barry, if there's anything left to say about ABK, which I think there is. Uh, after this gathering, I'm going to offer a drink to Doug Bond to make sure he puts AVK in this portfolio. <laughs> Um, I liked uh, Brian's uh, reference to uh, discount on discount. Again, most of our bonds are at discounts now, and uh, the fund has slipped to about uh, a 9% uh, discount. And uh, we also um, we have a lot of leverage. We, haven't, uh, we weren't excessively leveraged, so we still have our leverage intact. We're 45% uh, leveraged. Uh, this market bounces. Uh, that leverage is going to reverse from a handicap uh, to something very favorable. Right, and then, so that, that actually, you, Barry, I just asked to follow your lead uh, for all of my questions. My next question was about leverage. Uh, and how do you view that? How does the firm view locking in longer costs, longer-term financing, uh, just sort of the balance versus trying to go for capital appreciation versus the income considerations? How are portfolio managers dealing with leverage these days? I mean, it's certainly gotten more expensive than it was last year to some of the first panel speakers' comments. Um, I, you know, most of the leverage in the closed-end fund structure is based off of floating rate uh, preferreds, um, you know, variable rate demand notes on the municipal side. And I think if I was a closed-end fund manager, I I'd probably be 
decreasing my leverage position right now, just given the trajectory of short-term interest rates. That being said, I think more long-term, I think that's one of the benefits of the closed-end fund structure, right, is that you're able to capitalize on the use of leverage, and in particular, one of the things that I had mentioned before, and one of the reasons why I think um, you know, the closed-end fund structure is, is good for less liquid or even illiquid assets uh, is that you know, you're baking in on the debt side some sort of an illiquidity premium, right? So 50 basis points for a private uh, debt structure is generally what we look for on the infrastructure side. That compounds in addition to the ability to use leverage. So despite leverage costs increasing, and I think you know, on the whole, list, uh, on the whole uh, probably managing portfolios to a lower leverage ratio right now, I think more long-term, uh, there's certainly significant benefits to the use of leverage in a closed-end fund vehicle. Um, yeah, uh, either of you guys, Barry, Brian, on that subject? Well, I would just say that um, we are doing some hedging with AVK, but uh, predicting interest rates, I mean, it's very easy to predict and uh, extremely difficult uh, to get it uh, Right, indeed. Uh, my uh, first uh, task as a portfolio manager in 1981 was a bond fund in which we concluded that interest rates were going down. And uh, this uh, view was so unpopular that on opening day, uh, the salespeople insisted on calling me. They wouldn't take the orders from the traders to buy long discount uh, treasuries and uh, they wouldn't believe me, they called the CEO. And we got the orders executed, and in our first quarter, we came in first place among all closed end, all, I'm sorry, open-end uh, mutual funds, uh, fixed income. And that's why I'm here today. When you start out and have beginner's luck, uh, you sometimes have a career. Yeah, and uh, with Cohen and Sears, I'd say we've always kind of taken a more cautious approach uh, towards leverage where we look to lock in the floating rate portion uh, via interest rate swaps where uh, we're paying floating and we're receiving fixed, right? So that really helps to uh, kind of lock up the, the floating rate portion. I'd say right now the weighted average term of those swaps is still about four years. Uh, and the cost of the debt right now on average is about two and a half percent on our strategies. And if you think about, that's on preferreds, on the preferred portfolios. And if you think about the yield levels you're able to get in the preferred market today, an investment grade index of preferreds is currently yielding over 7%. So, um, but it's yeah. kind of the way to go. Um, Jonathan alluded to uh, liquidity premiums and the closed end fund structure efficiency at taking advantage of those. Do you see any of that, Brian, in, in your space, places where portfolio managers can use this structure compared to mutual funds or other things where the liquidity requirements might be greater uh, to gain an advantage? Uh, no, I mean, look, if you look at the funds today, they're all in, in the preferred market, they're all trading at pretty steep discounts. Um, as I said, PTA is at a 13% discount, the others are at about a 9 or a 10% discount. So uh, at times you'll see them trade at premiums, but uh, you're pretty deep in the discount area right now. Right. Um, I would like to editorialize for one second. I know that this panel is about, about these guys, uh, but there is also a liquidity premium. When you start talking about PTA or ASGI, these are term trusts trading at yep. double-digit discounts. 
that are going to close these discounts, right? It is, that, 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 there's not much you can guarantee or at least are allowed to say in this business, but that, that's gonna happen. Um, a close-end fund discount is a liquidity premium. If you have to sell a $10 net asset value for nine bucks to get out today, that, that money you left on the table is the price of liquidity. And so as people are entertaining these issues and sort of understanding within the disciplines of each individual asset classes where liquidity premiums are, but also within the structure of their investment, you can find that as well. Um, again, I, I'm on the analyst panel at the end of the day. I think it'll be my job uh, to tell you why I think these things are dirt cheap, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that afterwards. Um, we have a little bit of time left. We've got about 10 minutes on the clock, so I just wanted to put it to the audience if there are any questions. Uh, we'll take them at this time, otherwise we'll keep going. Hi there, David Adler, XAI. Um, question is, we talked about different risks. Is, is there any interest in terms of ESG from investors? Since we're talking about real assets, often that's linked to an ESG solution. Do you offer ESG solutions? Or put it another way, have the risks you've mentioned superseded investor concerns about ESG and it's not driving inflows? So uh, I could say I haven't seen all that much interest in an ESG kind of closed-end fund. I will say that with most of our investment teams, we are uh, taking into account ESG considerations as a part of our due diligence and valuation framework, right? Uh, so in both real estate and preferreds, our investment teams will start with MSCI's ratings. Uh, as a starting point, and then they're making adjustments to that score based upon their own views and findings through conversations and engagement with company management. So that is being taken into account, uh, not only in our due diligence, but also uh, as we uh, go through the valuation framework as well. But as far as demand for a closed-end fund vehicle, I myself have not uh, experienced that. I would echo uh, what Brian said. Uh, I don't think... Uh, we hear anything about ESG uh, with our closed-end fund. I mean, our business is mostly institutional, and we certainly are taking ESG uh, seriously uh, for the institutional uh, clients, and uh, we even have a committee working on this. Yeah, same here. Not so much in the wealth channel. I think when we're having ESG discussions in where we're deploying capital, it's probably more institutional-based, and I'd say even more so for investors outside, outside of the U.S. Um, that being said, you know we do feel that it is uh, uh, certainly a, a real opportunity for uh, future investment and future returns as we go forward. Right, some of the uh, uh, Paris Climate Initiatives with 2030 and 2050 zero uh, zero carbon uh, uh, goals are going to contribute to increased allocation to those types of infrastructure projects. So we do see a good deal of opportunity there. And we also see on the flip side, a good deal of risk when you're talking about um, carbon emitting power generation. So coal, uh, uh, ma mainly coal, but even on the gas side. So I think that it's important to educate some of the wealth community that maybe is less interested right now, just about what those risks are even though they might not care about uh, one particular issue over another, uh, I think those risks are, are, are real and they should be compensated for those risks. So that's how we look at ESG 
those are the conversations that we're trying to have with the wealth community. But to echo some of my fellow speakers' points, it's not, not, not something that we're looking to launch in the closed-end fund space. Okay. Anybody else? David. Participation by retail investors in private equity, private markets, is something that might be fertile ground for closed-end funds. The SEC has been a little bit restrictive in putting up limitations. Can you comment about the democratization of private equity investment for retail customers via closed-end funds and whether the SEC is being constructive on this? Well, I think we've come a long way, right? So our interpretation right now, obviously with the launch of ASGI, is that we can we can allocate to a 25% in private equity within the closed-end fund structure. I think it's likely that that gets expanded at some point, uh, and I'd be surprised if those discussions weren't ongoing. As I said previously, I think the closed-end fund structure makes a lot of sense for less liquid, I hate using the term illiquid assets, private equity, but certainly private debt being one of them. And I think it's important for a couple different reasons, but the main point being that we've got large need for real assets infrastructure build. On the uh, uh, green energy front, it's somewhere in excess of 150 trillion over the next 30 years. You know, that's roughly the size of the entire global capital markets and the equity market, that is. So where are the investors right now in private debt in particular? They're in the institutional channel. What is it going to take to get these infrastructure assets built? The wealth channel, the retail channel, globally, not just within the United States. So I think it's a necessity that we find ways to invest in these more less liquid assets and it makes a lot of sense in the closed-end fund structure. Uh, Brian or Barry, anything on that? Well, I'd say that uh, this sounds a bit like tech to me, that uh, efforts to enhance the environment are going to involve new technologies, growth companies, the kind of companies that tend to issue uh, convertibles. Yeah, and I think you may see us look to invest in some private within our real estate offerings as well, um, because you know, if you look at the real estate market right now, for example, you know, the, the public market's down 31, 32% year to date. You talk to a lot of advisors who are invested in the non-traded REITs right now, and they're, they're gonna tell you that a lot of these firms have marked up the asset values uh, of private real estate. And, that's not all that surprising because public typically leads by six to 12 months, right? So I'd say kind of get ready for that, those potential markdowns. But there's always that opportunity to arbitrage between the two, right? Um, and I think that's a capability that we may look to uh, build upon more uh, in the future. Um, does anybody else have a question from the audience? If not, I have, I have one more. It's interesting that we've gotten through an entire closed-end fund panel and we have yet to talk about the income issue. Um, what do you think in terms of distributions, clients who buy these for income, people who want some certainty as to their income, wh what should they be expecting in the next six months, the next year, or as far as you feel comfortable saying the ICs? I'll, I'll give Jonathan I'll the worst question first. <laughs> I anticipate no changes to our distributions. No, uh, it's serious. I mean, look, in, in the preferred world, yields are going higher, right? Uh, to give you a sense, 
At the end of last year, issuers were coming to market with coupons in the high threes to low fours. Uh, Bank of America, a high-quality U.S. issuer, obviously, issued back in May at six and an eighth. That's trading at a discount. So I think a high-quality U.S. issuer right now would have to come to market with at least a 7% uh, coupon attached to it. Uh, and that's just in the U.S. You look overseas and you know, you look at the contingent capital market, you're looking low double-digit type uh, coupons right now. So I think um, you know, yields are going up, income levels are going higher from here. But no anticipated changes to our funds. AVK has a record of uh, maintaining stability with our distributions with only a couple of exceptions uh, in our history. Uh, and uh, that seems likely to continue in the future. Um, all we need is a significant total return. And uh, with uh, discount convertibles, uh, with everything down so far, and with the leverage that we have, uh, I think it's a good bet that uh, we're going to have good total returns uh, looking ahead, yet we were able to maintain the, the monthly distribution uh, during this recent, uh, dare I say, market collapse. Jonathan, we've got 45 <laughs> seconds left, and we'll leave you on the hot seat. Yeah, I, I'd say it's probably natural that as short-term interest rates push up, as the first panel said, that it's going to eat into your distribution yield. I think it's our hope probably that things have leveled off and one of the benefits, especially on the debt side, is that as those securities mature, you're able to now reinvest that, you know, yields upwards of 10%, if not more, uh, depending upon the asset class, depending upon the, the, the credit risk. But, uh, you know, it's just a matter of do short-term interest rates continue on this trek upward. Obviously, I alluded to the CPI print this morning. It, it, it looks as though it, it, it will. Uh, but again, my hope is that uh, you know where we've seen dividend cuts, uh, we, we, we've probably <laughs> we've we've probably seen seen the worst of it. I, I would hope. All right. Well, anyway, on that note, thank you very much, everybody, for coming, and uh, we'll take questions after. <laughs>